This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. thankful for thanksgiving's coming up i'm thankful for many of the star trek films <laughs> which Susanna and i are watching in order right now all right that's pretty good that's pretty mm-hmm. good i'm thankful for gritty Ooh, yeah, and assorted mascot shenanigans across the country mm-hmm. like the newly inaugurated uh amarillo sand Sand poodle, sod poodles. I don't sod even know what poodles. they're called, and I love them. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're thankful for you, the listener, for being well, yeah, here. Yeah, we are thankful for you, the listener. Uh, we're excited to share another week of literature and laughs with you as we talk about books that we, uh, this month, have read before <laughs> and are talking to the other person about it. Andrew, what's the deal with Remember November? What do, you, <laughs> tell the, what do you mean what the deal is with that we are breaking the one rule of the show, which is we are reading books that we have each read in the past. Now, this might have been in school. This might have been like extracurricular, but um, it's it's a chance for us to revisit things that we wanted to talk about for the show, but have read already. And so haven't been able to without, you know, without breaking them rules. Yes. And in some cases, like I don't want to make Craig read The Wheel of Time. So <laughs> it's just easier this way. <laughs> Yeah, you'd make me read all of them, but it sounds like you're going to make yourself read all of them now. Yeah, so the jur- jury's still out on that. I did buy the second one, but that's still like a far cry from buying all 14 of them. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so this week I read Nella Larson's Passing, which I think was published in 1929. I think that's right. Yeah, 1929. Yeah, 1929. This is her second novel. Her first novel, Quicksand, came out in 1928. Sure. Um, And this was a book I remember reading. I don't think it was middle school because the book takes a turn at the end that I don't think I would have read in middle school. But I definitely (laughs) read it in school. And it's like been a like an early 20th century American novel that has just been like rattling around in my brain since I read it, even though I don't rereading it. I didn't remember the like specifics of the relationship. And the yeah, like is this, is this the thing where, where you read it and you didn't know that you got it. And so now you want to come back to it. Yes. Like that's kind of how I approached the great Gatsby last year when I read it. Yes, completely. Cause I completely. definitely didn't like it at the time, but coming back to it, I, I understand. Yeah. And I think so it's set in the twenties, which we'll talk a little bit more about and roaring twenties. It is about the concept of passing uh, black people of the time, passing for white people of the time. Um, Though it can be like yeah, contemporaneously, it's not just the it can yeah, be yeah, yeah, applied yeah. to anybody who's passing for white. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I remember it more as a like historical novel, like a social studies ish novel. Oh, uh, sure. 
not a like work of literature, which I certainly reading it now, like, yeah, that's, de- I mean, that's, it has, it has some trappings of, of 20s and 30s novels, uh, just in terms of kind of what it's doing with characters and, and how it is engaging with its setting, but it's not all about its setting. Yeah, because I, I can see how it would be it, like reading it in school would be a kind of social studiesy book because it is um, um, Nella Larson is like part of the Harlem Renaissance or like part of that movement, though. That movement is very like large and messy and not yes. even necessarily <laughs> totally located in Harlem. Correct. Correct. <laughs> but um, but that movement was very involved with the civil rights movement at the time. So institutions like um the NAACP, and I have a full list here, um, the National Urban League, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is a black labor union with an excellent name. That's great. Yeah. And other other groups. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been interesting to, to go back to it. So let's talk about um, Nella Larson real quick. She was born in 1891 in Chicago, uh, born Nellie Walker. Um, her father, they think like we believe was an immigrant from the Danish West Indies. Yeah. Um, Afro-Caribbean is what I found. Yeah. Um, And her mother was a Danish immigrant. um, And he like skipped out on them pretty early. Yeah. It was a little unclear, like whether he died or disappeared or I think she was told that he died, but I don't actually know that that we're 100% sure that's what happened. But yeah, so she had a, um, a black or mixed race dad and a white mother mm-hmm. who then um, remarried a another Danish immigrant. So it was white parents, and then or I believe that she had a white sister as well, yes, and then yes. and then her. Um, and her family was in in some of the places they lived, kind of discriminated against because of her, which sucks. Yep. But you know, it's kind of the norm for. Uh, mixed race families even i mean even today mixed race families get weird backlash like when they appear in serial ads or That's, other things uh, that you think would be innocuous yeah just people trying to eat some cheerios um <laughs> and it's worth noting that she was born um before what's referred to as the great migration in the united states right which i think like you can put a loose bracket around like the mid 1910s to 1930 or so where uh, a lot of folks who had previously been living in the South, a lot of black folks left the South and moved to various cities in the Midwest and the North and Northeast. Yeah, just trying to escape that guy, Jim Crow, who sounds yep. like a real, real bad guy. You yeah. know, that guy, he seems like he sucks. Pretty bad. Um, and so that, along with other immigration from Europe, was creating a lot of different tensions among groups in cities. So it was kind of ripe for Larson's family to get a raw deal. Yeah. So and 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 the Great Migration's interesting because it 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 all ties together with the Harlem Renaissance. So I, I was looking at the history of of Harlem and Harlem as sort of a black city came to be in the early 1900s when um like a housing market bust combined with like great migration combined with development and other parts of new york like pushing people out um created this appetite for cheap real estate among Hmm. black folks okay um and so they you know there were there were kind of conflicting thoughts about what harlem like was and what it represented kind of through this renaissance period whether it was a sort of a utopia 
for black folks and, and black art or whether it was kind of a, a slum that, you know, where sure that was okay. undesirable and the property values were bad and, and whatever, whatever. And um, that that utopia bubble kind of decisively burst, I think, in 1935 um, by a giant race riot that happened in, in the city. OK. Um but yeah, the Harlem Renaissance itself started in, um, you know, it, it depends on what kind of art you're looking at, but it generally is is thought to have started around 1918 and then ended around 1929 or 1930 when the stock market crashed and the Great Depression started. Um, and the literary part of it kind of con- peaked between um, 1924 and 1929. So in 24, there was this thing called the Civic Club Dinner, where a bunch of... Um, publishers and and black authors you know got together at this at this big dinner and they all met and all these ideas cross-pollinated and they all started appearing in each other's magazines and collaborating a lot more and um and yeah that that sort of started the thing like harlem is is the anchor of the movement sure but it's not but like the only this di- but the, like this dinner didn't even happen in harlem it <laughs> happened it happened like north of harlem that's pretty good but a lot you know some of the some of the more prominent voices did live there and sure. around there um but yeah there were there were also elements of you know art music theater like of it, it exposed a lot of white folks to black black art um yeah. especially like jazz music which you know has older origins in new orleans and and elsewhere but was was popularized partly during the um, Harlem Renaissance. Um, there was a black show on Broadway for the first time in a while or ever. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> called um, Shuffle Along. That oh yeah, I read a bit about. Yeah. There was a really good um, piece in Humanities Texas that I read by this uh, professor Carrie D. Wintz, who is a, a a scholar of the Harlem Renaissance and and African American political thought, he says, mm. and it has just a lot of lot of interesting information with how the different kinds of art intersected and how it intersected with with different trends and and different um, social movements that cool. were happening. So if you're if you're looking for more about the Renaissance, I found that article pretty enlightening. So but it, that's the yeah, primer. I want to make sure that we had that because the characters in the book spend the latter two-thirds of the book in Harlem and uh Larson herself ended up there after um kind of she took a quick jaunt to Denmark when she was younger she like went to and left Fisk University in Tennessee she worked as a nurse uh in New York City and then later as a librarian through New York Public Library and that kind of got her hooked up with the literary scene um she uh, married in 1919 and then in the early 20s just was like i'm gonna be a writer now this is what i'm gonna do um, yeah she was she was a nurse for a while in the 19 teens yeah yeah and then um she was a librarian for a little while in the early 20s and she started publishing stuff in in the mid to late 20s so yeah like i like i said first novels in 1928 called quicksand second novel in 29 called passing and then there are a lot of uh, short stories but she and her husband split up. Her husband, interestingly, was um, the second ever African-American to earn a Ph.D. in physics. Elmer Imes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elmer Imes. And then she was the first black woman to graduate from the NYPL Library School. Yes. Um, so a lot of a lot of firsts happening at this time when the Civil War still would have been like at the very living of living yep. memory. Which, yep. woof, woof. Um, 
But yeah, after after she got after they got divorced in 33 and then he died in 40 or 41. Um, you know, she was she was battling depression. They had a bad split. Yeah. And um and she kind of re- she returned to nursing to support herself and she sort of fell out of contact with other Harlem Renaissance folks and with the rest of the literary community and and that was kind of the end of her career as a writer, which which is too bad because the stuff that she has written is is pretty celebrated. Yeah, this <clears throat> her quicksand is understood to be pretty autobiographical. Um, it's about a mixed race woman in her twenties, like traveling to Denmark and learning about her family and and dealing with who she is and where where she fits. Isn't she and, involved in nursing? Yes, in yep. that book too. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Passing has a couple of diff- a couple of characters who are passing and kind of might, you know, you might say they represent different parts of her or her experience. And mm-hmm. then uh, the husband in the book, Brian, is a doctor, um, which some have said kind of takes from her medical background. But the fact that he is this um, successful black man in the sciences also echoes her husband, um, Elmer yeah. Imes. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, and then the the only other thing, she had a third book that she was working on. She got a Guggenheim fellowship for it, um, traveled in Europe, but then just it never got published. And then, as you said, she kind of spiraled out and, and went back to work just to support herself as a nurse. Yeah, yeah. her last um, work, published work that I could find was in 1930. So, yeah, pretty brief career. Yeah, yeah. All things considered. Um, you want to take maybe a quick break? We'll come back and dive on in. Yeah, let's do it. Andrew, how much do you like music? Quite a bit. Good. Well, then I, I have a podcast for you. Oh, good. Uh, the podcast is supporting us this week, Discord and Rhyme. It's a music podcast uh, where the hosts discuss their favorite albums song by song. Uh, eight rotating co-hosts, four at a time, take turns choosing a classic or favorite album to talk about one track at a time, including background info on the band, the making of the album, and how all the hosts discovered it in the first place. They do not restrict themselves to any particular era or genre, and so far they've covered rock, soul, hip-hop, and prog with plans for much more. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and any other podcatcher, and episodes release every other Thursday. Um, I was just looking Discord in Rhymes' most recent episode. I believe is on uh, Joni on Mitchell's Joni Blue. Mitchell's Blue. Yeah, their first episode is on All in All by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Heck yeah! All in All, I'm and then their fifth episode is Dave Matthews Band Under the Table and Dreaming. This is a pretty good mix. I'm just like I'm very excited to see the first 50 episodes of this show and like and just like where it goes from here they've already covered ween and aretha franklin like this is a pretty good list for yeah for 11 episodes i think that's probably as wide a spectrum as you can possibly so if imagine. this if this sounds like a good idea for a show to you which it probably does you should go to discordpod.com uh, or twitter.com slash discordpod to find out more that's discord and rhyme um, and they are supporting our show through our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash overdue pod. Craig, we're back. Oh, whoa, I wasn't ready. We're back? <laughs> yeah, we're back, buddy. Uh-oh. Get ready. Tell me about this book. 
Okay. Tell me about passing. I will tell you about passing. Um, so as we said before, it is set in the 1920s. Um, it is structured a little bit like a little three-act play. It's a pretty slim volume, and it's broken into three parts, encounter, re-encounter, and finale. Oh, uh, well, those are <laughs> that's pretty straightforward. Uh, well, how is it in... in like, what's the typical structure of a three-act play? Like, if I'm going to buy a book that tells me how to write a three-act play, what am I looking at, and how does that map to this book? Yeah, you're looking at the, like, lay of the land part, which, like, lays out a central problem and introduces characters, right? Right, and then, in the first act, there's a gun. Yes, and then Always. in the second act, everyone lusts for the gun. Yeah, and, and there's, like, more guns. What if there are more guns, and do we know how the guns work, and you want the gun, but I want the gun, mm-hmm. and then the third act is where we all learn that we were the guns along the way. Yeah. and and uh, you find the bullets, too. And you find the bullets, too, and the world is forever changed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an inevitability to... I asked you a serious question that immediately derailed your answer in a completely useless way. There's there's an inevitability to Act 3, which is kind of fascinating. Um, And the scale of it also is like the character, the dramatist persona is actually pretty uh, slim, which Mm -hmm. uh, like also lends it to feeling kind of like a play. Um, It's just very economical, which is why I keep bringing up the the comparison to to something for the stage. Yeah, I feel like most three act plays I've I've seen are like one or two sets and then the same like combination of characters kind of crashing into each other. Yes. Each time in different circumstances. Yeah, different from your like five act Shakespeare kind of thing. And even those kind of still map to like a three act whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. we're not this is not a play podcast. This is a book podcast. Get it? Mm-hmm. Um we're not playing around. <laughs> no, we are not. So we are introduced right away to our main character Irene Redfield. Um, who has received a letter from a woman she knows, Claire Kendry, um, who is in New York, uh, where Irene lives and longs to meet up with her. And immediately, Irene is like, oh, this reminds me of the last time I saw Claire Kendry. And, hmm, I have feelings about that. Um, The letter from Claire ends, uh, and it's your fault, Irene, dear, at least partly, for I wouldn't now perhaps have this terrible, this wild desire if I hadn't seen you that time in Chicago. Um, Brilliant red patches flamed in Irene Redfield's warm olive cheeks that time in Chicago. And then we get like a a like back to two years ago when the two of them met in the Windy City. Ooh, Chicago. Yes. And I was just struck like, because we don't get letters anymore, Andrew, just like as people... Mm -hmm. Like, it's kind of like an email or if just, like, a long-lost friend replied to you on Twitter and you're like, what do I do with this emotional information? What Sometimes do I- people send us an email that has, like, a Word doc attached. And I kind of feel like that's, like, that gives close. me a kind of snail mail feeling these days. That's pretty close, yeah. But mm-hmm. this is, like, unlocking someone's emotional history. Like, that's a, a, podcast emails are very nice, but they tend not to, like tug at my romantic heartstrings yet i suppose <laughs> i don't want to close things off <laughs> who knows what could happen i guess um so we go we go back to chicago and irene is there traveling um she's running around the city in the summer like trying to buy 
toys for her kids, I think. Um, and we get a couple shots of her like being waited on and uh, taking a cab and the driver taking good care of her. And she goes to this rooftop cafe at this uh, hotel in Chicago and she gets some iced tea and it's very nice. And then we get like a little beat where the waiter comes over and sits people right next to her and she's pissed about it. Mm -hmm. She had been alone there at the window and it had been so satisfyingly quiet. Now, of course, they would chatter. Which is like every time I've been in an Arby's or an Applebee's. Not Arby's. They don't see people at Arby's. I meant Applebee's. Whoops. You ever go to the Arby's and just people want to chat you up the whole time? They just sit next to you. Hey, nice wild... beef. I Look at I... that beef. Look at the curl to... on that fry. I came to this Arby's to sit quietly and think. And now you're sitting next to me chomping on your curly fries. Mm, Can't just handle guzzling, it. guzzling your sweet sauces. <laughs> Dang it. I didn't mean Arby's. <laughs> yeah. Um... And so she's sitting there and this uh, this woman sits at the table next to her and they immediately start kind of looking at each other and Irene doesn't really know what's happening. She's not sure if she knows this woman. She doesn't think she does. She doesn't know if the woman is judging her um, because this is the first time in the book where the book explicitly tells you that Irene is black. Mm-hmm. Um you can infer it from something in, in the first chapter where she says she has olive skin, but but that's the closest that you get. Um, so she's looking yeah, at because this... olive could mean I, that's a yep. common descriptor I think for like Greek folks. Yes. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you you could be forgiven for like even as the reader she is maybe passing a little bit if you go in yes. not quite knowing for sure what the what the book is about. So what does she say when she's looking at this woman across the, the restaurant? She says, did that? What, did the woman, could that woman somehow know that here before her very eyes on the roof of the Drayton sat a Negro? Absurd. Impossible. White people were so stupid about such things, for all they usually asserted that they were able to tell, and by the most ridiculous means, fingernails, palms of hands, shapes of ears, teeth, and other equally silly rot, they always took her for an Italian, a Spaniard, a Mexican, or a Gypsy. Mm-hmm. Never, when she was alone, had they even remotely seen to suspect that she was a negro and she goes on to say that she's not upset about being identified as black she's upset at the idea that she would then maybe be kicked out of this very nice hotel sure um and that's when the book is like okay this lady has been passing all these people have been waiting on her as if she is white um and it's also worth remembering and the intro to this book does a really good job of um, talking about the context of something like Plessy versus Ferguson, which I think was like 1896 and separate but equal is like put into effect, mm-hmm. um, which creates a whole lot of like very explicit legal ways to discriminate um, against people for the color of their skin. Yeah. Which then creates more incentives for the type of passing that Irene is doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so she, they realize that they do know each other because Claire is like calling her. They haven't seen each other in like 12 years. Claire calls her Reen, which no one calls her. I don't, because I have a single syllable name, I don't think anybody could like say an, a nickname to me 10 years from now in a way that would make me like know who they were. I don't think. Because we've never, neither of us have picked up a lot of nicknames. No, no, not really. Yeah podcast boy is that your who calls no, does anyone call you I'm that not, no okay but 
but it's like that's what somebody that's what a bully calls you before he like pushes you down in the mud hey podcast boy hey, podcast boy how's well, your then, microphone well then you might run into that bully at an applebee's 10 years from now and he'd say hey, is that podcast the, boy local arby's like hey yeah. look at podcast boy getting that's that true. big beef and cheddar so they recognize <laughs> each other uh Irene recognizes Claire by her laugh. Um, and so they start talking and Claire is talking about how she is passing now. Um, when she they were they grew up in Chicago, Claire's father passed away and she was sent to live with her white aunts and they raised her terribly. And so as soon as she could, she got out of there and married this um, rich white guy. And he doesn't know that she is black. Um, I don't, which I don't remember if that is revealed at this moment, but uh, she is passing completely. Whereas Irene, as we know, is doing it like intermittently for herself in public. But when she's home in New York, she's like hanging out. She's married to a black man. She's hanging out with black people. Um, she's working for uh, like a welfare society um, for black people. So like an equivalent of the NAACP. Um, so she is not hiding it in the same way, but what happens, Andrew, in this first section is we get a sense of like a sexual tension between the two of them that is as much a part of this book as the passing, like the racial passing. Tell me more. So Irene throughout this whole opening section is like, I can't this Claire lady's complicated. Um, she's kind of selfish and just gets what she, she is. She has a having way. Like she just has things um, and she goes to get them. And I don't want to invite this, per- this like chaos person into my life. Cause she's just going to mess everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, but Claire is like inviting her over for tea and, um, she can't stop looking at her and she and like the descriptions of her and and what claire looks like are just written in a way that irene is into it um okay at that moment it seemed a dreadful thing to think of never seeing claire kendry again standing there under the appeal the caress of her eyes uh irene had the desire the hope that this parting wouldn't be the last and that's a thing that keeps happening to Irene every time she's like trying to be like, Claire's a mess. I would like to leave. I would like <laughs> to not be part of this. It's it's going to undermine my life. But she's such an alluring mess, Craig. She's a very alluring mess. She's a mess that I need to know more about. Correct. She Like, I want to know more about her directly. And I want to know more about how she pulls off this passing stuff is where Irene is. Um and so the next like major scene is Irene showing up to tea at Claire's house where another friend of theirs, Gertrude, has been invited. And she is also, you know, passing on her own sometimes. And uh, Claire's husband shows up, Jack Ballou. Well, he's a white guy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know that the ladies in this room are not white. And he's an unrepentant racist. Oh, good. That's the best kind of racist. Yeah. Who jokes about his wife, like, purposefully making herself look darker Mm -hmm. in, like, a way that's, like, if he had any more screen time in this book, you wouldn't believe that he was that 
like unobservant. Like the concept of screen time in a book. You know what I mean. We call it page time, maybe. Pa- oh, maybe we call it page time. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was on page more often, we would we would probably poke some holes in his inability to to see the world around him. But maybe- yeah, I mean, I like it better when you can just assume that people that like the world is a racist place, and we don't have to like actually hang out with the racists. That's a good point. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> like, well, could and, we just like not for a and, minute. And his bigotry is, um, like, ho- it is total and complete, and probably so strong that that's why he could never imagine that she would not be white. Um, he says he's never even met a black person, but when asked if he dislikes them, he responds, "No, I hate them." Cool, cool dude, and. It, so I re- it takes everything in Irene's body not to just yell at him and say that she is black, but she doesn't, nor does Gertrude, and Claire mm-hmm. does not tell him either. And again, Irene and Gertrude leave, and they're like, we can't hang out with her. Like, she's a mess. This is a bad <laughs> scene, mm-hmm. because if we are put in that situation anymore, like, it's going to eat us alive, like, not being able to respond to that. And so two years go by, and Claire is in New York trying to reconnect with Irene. And Irene is like faced with whether or not she should. Um, which is a pretty loaded situation in the life that she's built for herself in New York. Um, and that's where we meet her husband, uh, Brian. So this is like interesting stuff, Andrew, because the... The tension between them is a couple of different things. Irene okay. wants security above all else. She wants a safe life for her boys. I can identify with that. Right? And so we get this window into a marriage where like Brian is working really hard. He is providing for his family. But he kind of has this yen to leave America and maybe move to Brazil. Uh, okay, <laughs> which like is mentioned a couple times potentially because it will be more tolerant of people of color. Um, at least that's what's implied in the book. Um, maybe it will like free them from their sexually repressed marriage because they mm-hmm. have separate rooms in their house and uh, don't really have a physical relationship even though she spends much of the book ogling Claire, so you know she's capable of one Uh um, if she had the opportunity. And they do get into a fight later in the book where one of the boys like reads about a lynching in the South and Brian starts trying to engage with his son about it and Irene shuts him down. It's like, don't talk to our boys about the race problem. And he's like... like, Is he trying to do it in in the, the sense of like the talk? sort of yeah it's it's sort of like that because his son is like why do people do that why do they hate like that etc etc and she is like can they not just like have a childhood first and his argument is like but they need to know the world that they're gonna be in like you can't Uh, it's yeah it's there's no good answer but it does provide this window into why she passes which is like she gets to live this middle slash middle, this upper middle class life, um, not only through the the work um, that she does and that her that her husband does 
but also because when she goes out into the world, she doesn't immediately get discriminated against mm-hmm. depending on who she's with and, and who she's talking to. Um, so Irene is kind of in a little bit of denial herself about like what, what she finds so audacious about Claire is the blatant, the blatancy and the, the blatancy, the totality of Claire's passing is, is really rough for her to wrap her mind around. Sure. Um, so as I said, Claire comes to New York and the two of them reconnect and Claire just kind of barges into her life and says, I'm here now. My husband travels all the time. So whenever he's gone, I'm going to come up to Harlem and hang out with you because I need to be around black people. Mm-hmm. And you awakened this in me. I feel disconnected from who I am and I need to be with them. Now, most of these black people don't know that she's black. So that's a weird thing that happens when well, I think yeah, and that that reflects um a lot of of what happened in uh in Larson's childhood is yes she you know her her parents are white she's living in a white neighborhood but she's also like cut off from she's cut off from the benefits of whiteness and also f- from like cultural blackness and so she gets to live in the nether zone and like yeah and and, and get she gets to wrestle with this stuff all the time yeah it's so they go to this like party that Irene has helped organize for the Negro Welfare League and we get a little bit of like the larger world around them because it is pretty like like it's pretty tight as I said before but we go to this bigger party and there are like artists and uh, people from other parts of Manhattan who come up to Harlem to like see what the black art is to like experience you know white people coming in as like cultural tourists basically Um, and the book both acknowledges the benefit and the cost of that Um, the guy that is directly referenced um, there's a character named Hugh Wentworth who is supposed to be an analog or, or a not an analog, but like a stand-in for a real guy that Larson knew, Carl Van sure. Vechten, mm-hmm. who wrote a controversial book about the Harlem Renaissance that like W.E.B. Dubois hated, but Langston Hughes like defended. He also sounds like a character in a like a book about windmills. <laughs> he does. I don't know how his Dutch heritage like informed his photography or his writing, but it's very possible. Um and he gets into this conversation with Irene at this party while they're watching like everyone at the party dance with Claire, this mysterious white woman who's at this party. Um, and he's talking about like whether or not he can identify people who are passing. He is wondering why certain people at the party are attracted, why like some of the white women that come to these parties are attracted to black men and Irene is like trying to logic away attraction. She's being like, well, it's just because it's so different from what you encounter in your day-to-day life. And it's not, it's very rational to be, to be attracted to something that's different from you. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, in the intro by Thaddeus Davis, like talks about um, how repressed sexually Irene feels as a woman in the book. And this is one of the sections that she cites as like, here's this, uh, sensuous dancing scene and a guy kind of talking about the various levels of attraction on the dance floor and Irene's like using science to explain why 
any of that attraction exists as a way to kind of like separate it from herself. Okay. Um, and again, all of that is making Claire this more dangerous, more dangerous character um, that is potentially upending Irene's like carefully built life, right? So the the last act of this book, Andrew, I said it kind of feels inevitable. Um, it starts to have a kind of forward thrust that the rest of the book doesn't really, where it's like okay. people just kind of talking about their experiences and... Yeah, you know, it sounds like the the first couple thirds of it so far have been like people interacting with other people and then stewing in their feelings about those people. Yeah, I was surprised by um, the outsized impact of the tea party with Claire's husband because it really is like three pages of dialogue mm-hmm. and then the rest of the book kind of hinges on that initial spark of the relationship. Um, there's a little, there's some interactions between uh irene and her husband brian but like the big scene in in the second chapter is this dance i'm talking about the third one is like irene is just counting the weeks until claire gets out of her life because uh claire is supposed to go back to like see her daughter in switzerland in march or something and claire is pretty ever present in their life in their life right now and brian is increasingly distant um and she starts to presume that they are having some sort of affair. And it comes out of... That's one of the reasons why I've talked about the like repression angle so much. Because that really seems to inform Irene's perspective. Um, at one point, Irene is asleep. She had planned a party. But she was so worn out, she passed out. I know that's never happened I to either of us. I have there. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll do a party and I'll be so like concerned with making sure everybody else has everything that they want that I will realize like a third of the way through that I am not having any fun and I just need to like course correct a little bit. So, so Irene is like taking an extra nap before this party happens. Brian wakes her up to say that he he talked to Claire when she came by and invited her to the party. And Irene was like, no, I deliberately didn't invite her on purpose. <laughs> and that interaction spawns this whole like head canon of Irene, like thinking that they are together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes important because lo and behold, Andrew, Jack's in town. Ooh. Claire's husband's in town. He bumps into Irene on the street with another black friend of hers, instantly realizes that he was mistaken in thinking that Irene was white several years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's unclear, but maybe he then surmises that Claire is black. And that becomes the central question for Irene. Should she tell uh, Claire's husband that Claire is black? And almost like a threat, like a weapon. She can she can use this information to like ruin this woman's life. Yeah, that would that would be like the only way to to use that kind of thing because it's not her business. No, who knows, who knows that someone else is black? It is no, and so or there, who knows like what anybody is anything. I'm just like how people choose to, I guess, identify and and present is 
mostly their business. Like 99% yes. of the time it's yes. their business. Unless well, you get into like a Rachel Dolezal situation. In that's which true. case, yeah. But. Well, and what's interesting about the predicament Irene puts herself in is she is like counting the different allegiances. Like, does she... Who does she value more? The relationship to her husband? And so she is going to per- perhaps like ruin Claire to get her off the table does she uh feel a great affinity to this like woman that she is potentially interested in and excites her does she feel a particular allegiance to her race which Claire is making her think about in a way that she hasn't had to like Irene thinks about herself as like a where she is socially from a like comfort level first and would as i said before rather not engage with the realities of like she she would rather not address like social issues head on she's kind of just there to make sure her boys have a nice roof over their head um and that she feels taken care of so she gets herself in a quandary where she realizes if she does unveil claire's uh that Claire's been passing, then maybe Claire's marriage will fall apart and Claire will steal Irene's husband, which is like when she thinks that, you know that it's not totally logical. It's like Mm -hmm. a twisted logic that someone like Ibsen would put in a play. Like it's the like, oh, well, because of these deductions based on my extreme emotions, this is the only possible thing that could go down. And so you as the reader are just kind of like, well, dang it, this is going to go bad. (laughs) Um, And it culminates in sort of a, not every book is related to one another, but it sort of hits a separate piece moment, Andrew. Yeah, every book, actually, that's been the way we've done the whole show is that every episode has led into the other episode and we've left clues along the way for everybody to find if you listen to the first word of every podcast mm-hmm. in it order. spells out a special message yep. and like geocaching is involved it's a whole thing yeah um and it builds to this climactic party where um claire's husband has traced her to harlem runs in um shouts slurs at her and she's like standing by this open window and Irene like moves to her and like puts a hand on her arm and then uh, Claire falls out the window. Oh no. And it's this moment similar. Oh, no, this is a separate piece. Thing. Yes. Oh, dang it. It ah. is because <laughs> the, the close third person perspective like gives you every reason to believe that she did it on, that she did something on purpose. Um, but her memory becomes so fuzzy and her sense of self is so fuzzy that she doesn't really know or can admit what it would, happened. It would depend on the window. It's a pretty big window on like the sixth floor of a building. Pers- just like putting your hand on somebody's arm. I feel like if somebody didn't want to go out that window, there would be more resistance to that. Like they wouldn't just, just go. But I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody's reflexes. <laughs> that's true. I guess. That's, that's true. Um, it's interesting that the edition I read, um, which is the Penguin Books edition, um, used the original like first print, first edition version that has more at the end of the book than the third printing did. So 
the end of the book ends with Irene like on the street. People are asking her what happened. Um, and there's like a cop around like be asking people questions. Her quaking knees gave way under her. She moaned and sank down, moaned again through the great heaviness that submerged and drowned her. She was dimly conscious of strong arms lifting her up. Then everything was dark. And one edition of the book just ended there. And then the version that was the original version and then the one that I read says, Centuries after, she heard the strange man saying, Death by misadventure, I'm inclined to believe. Let's mm -hmm. go up and have another look at that window. Hmm. I know, to right? Be to be continued? Yeah, it's, it's like you're oddly... Reviews at the time <laughs> actually um, were like, why does it end the way it does? There are a couple contemporaneous reviews that are like, the ending doesn't actually address the theme or the issue of passing. It's one of those kind of... It's a... Tra what is the phrase? It was like, it doesn't solve the problem. It's like, that's not what the book is there to do. The book is to like take right, you to like this the tragic flashpoint. Well, and the act of passing is just kind of an ambient thing, and I yes. think that is what passing actually is is like. Like, of course, I'm not speaking as somebody who has firsthand experience, but I don't think you're going around like just thinking about how you're passing all the like literally all the time. Probably, I don't know. What the book does an interesting job of is portraying it not as a like performance, but just a thing that you can take advantage of sure like there's not a scene in the book where anyone is putting on makeup that makes them look extra white or like dyeing their hair sure. or anything like that it's more about the markers that folks have agreed on as like using as an excuse to sure, sure. to delineate personhood um, and types of personhood and people who kind of straddle some of those categories saying, well, if I want some some of these advantages, why don't I just get them? Um, and in a way that's like similar to, I don't know, something that I definitely did not get reading this book when I was younger was how much them being women affects, like women in the 20s affects what is available to them. Like they are both very dependent on at least these particular women are very dependent on their husbands in ways that like limit their options mm -hmm. um if claire doesn't have to sneak away from her racist husband to like go to harlem and hang out with people then uh this book doesn't happen you know what i mean right yeah um and the fact that they are potentially interested in each other and the book doesn't address it directly but does have a lot of strong hints about it also has another level of passing then like going on yeah that i'm just i'm kind of wondering like i'm trying to think how you would have talked about this book in high school or wh wherever you read it originally i'm just wondering if you have concrete memories about like what the lesson plan was like like usually when you yeah. when you read a book in in high school or whatever like there are big accepted themes that are like the reason that you're reading that book and they will like the the whoever's teaching the class is going to go down the list and when you have to take a pop quiz about it you're going to have to like do the list of like 10 things so i'm just i'm kind of wondering what that looked like and if you remember any of it and like if you got anything 
else out of it like as a 32 good job one year younger than me yeah except for one magical equinox month (laughs) every year um but just as, as somebody who's who definitely takes more time now to think about this kind of thing than anybody or like any white kid at least does when they are like you know 17 18 yeah not even that probably um the what i said at the top of it being a historical piece and taught as a historical piece probably uh was the strongest part of what I took from the book as a kid of like, oh, it was a time when people passed, right? Mm-hmm. And I even almost like you were wisely like, no, it's not a historical thing. Like that's still a thing that people talk about, and um, colorism is still a thing. And uh, I think don't even just talk not like not even talking about like passing. You can get yeah. into like light skin versus dark yes. skin and all mm-hmm. kinds of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a section in the book where the three women are you know, talking about their children and how thankful they are that their kids are not dark. And Irene is like, well, one of my sons is dark. What's the problem? Mm -hmm. And they like unpack the ways in which it is a problem for them. And you're like, oh, woof. Um, So I think definitely a a difference reading this book now and and reading it in, in school and probably the early aughts was like a real understanding of how we issues that are still around 90 years later as opposed to this being a time capsule book of a different of like ooh the yeah. ja- jazz age problems man sometimes i wish we would just sometimes i wish everything was like that book that upton sinclair did about like meat being bad <laughs> and then we like fixed meat and now meat is good again like i, I wish we could Andrew. i wish every book that old Sure. Could just like be like, like, oh, we identified this as a problem, then we fixed it, and now we're good, right? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, and there's definitely no problems with the meat industry today at all. No, but like, <laughs> I can go and buy meat and eat it and not die. Usually, like, yeah, that's, okay, that's if that's what you're talking about, sure. Yeah, no, yes. no, no, that's what I, that's what I mean. Okay, the cows still die, and all well, their like, farts I mean, are like causing global warming and, like, and stuff. Methane, and you know, like, blah 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 blah. <laughs> Upton Sinclair's "The Cow Farts" is his is his take on global warming. Who's his lesser known follow up? <laughs> but like how Al Gore did "Inconvenient Truth" too, it's like the same thing. <laughs> the other thing I definitely would not have clocked, and I've certainly gotten you know gotten better at as we've done been doing the show, are some of just the language stuff. I did not clock this book as a like beautifully written book when i was reading it in high school um and there's just occasional turns of phrase that are pretty wonderful so like when irene is whipping herself up into this like fever of thinking that brian and claire are like running off together of which there is no actual evidence in the book right um and she then kind of just makes the mental decision that it's definitely happening and she checks herself and is like, I don't feel any worse now that I've decided that it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wonders why that is. Was it perhaps that she had endured all that a woman could endure of tormenting humiliation and fear? Or was it that she lacked the capacity for the acme of suffering? 
no, I'm human like everyone else. It's just that I'm so tired, so worn out, I can't feel anymore. I like put the book I mean, down at real. the phrase yeah. acne of suffering. <laughs> it's like that rules. What a good sentence. <laughs> um, and like also when I mean when, that kind of sounds like the name of a Game of Thrones book. <laughs> acme of suffering. So that's the last one. It's the Acme of Suffering. Nine Inch Nails <laughs> album or something. Um, also, when she talks about Brian. Um, his first entrance in the book, she is like doing makeup and she's like running late and he slips into the room behind her and she comments on how like noiseless he is when he moves. And this comes up a couple times so that when uh, Larson is talking about their marriage being pretty bad, she says, Brian too had withdrawn. The house contained his outward self and his belongings. He came and went with his usual noiseless irregularity. He sat across from her at table. He slept in his room next to hers at night but he was remote and inaccessible. I was like, oh, dang, that's why you had him walking around in wrestling shoes before, because now he's like this silent man not existing in her life. It's pretty... Yeah, right. Larson's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty effective book. Um, yeah, and she's, she's kind of one of those authors who you are... Like, you're glad that you've got the books that you've got, but it also is it's just too bad that she yeah. could she could produce more work and part of that is probably like how we talked and thought about mental health back then and, mm-hmm. and some of it is yeah I, I don't know it's wrapped up in all kinds of things well but. and she did when did she i when did she pass she passed in 64 so like i would love to have seen her writing in response to the second world war because like this book is very aware of the fact that men came back from World War One. Like I think that's a thing right, that is mentioned yeah. about Brian and the the things that people are trying to achieve post the First World War. Yeah, and the end of World War One is roughly one like the the earlier bookend of the Harlem Renaissance yeah. itself. So. so so like having her around to respond to leading up to world war ii and then american society after world war ii would have been fascinating well and uh, and dying in 64 i don't think she would have gotten a a chance to write about like the height of the no civil yeah. rights movement kind You're of right. as, as we think about it today anyway but i would have been interested to see more from her about you know the the tensions and the stuff that led up to the the late 60s yes yeah and yeah so, Nella Larson, you should check her out, y'all. Maybe go read Quicksand. Tell me what I'm missing. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have read Quicksand, you can email us your thoughts at overduepod at gmail.com. Twitter.com slash overduepod is also a website you can use, as is facebook.com slash overduepod. It's our social websites for social media. Uh, folks have been reaching out in the past week in response to previous episodes that we've done. Uh, so thanks to Julianne, Nora, Shelby, Bree, Kate, Laura, Pam, Katie, Kirk, Catherine, Carol, Sam, and many more for making us feel good throughout the week. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is a place where we have a bunch of links to a bunch of different things. So you got Apple Podcasts, Google Play, um, our RSS feed, those are all ways you can subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, do rate and review us. We're pushing a 1,000. Woo! I'd love to have a 1,000 by the end of the year. I think that's realistic, probably. We can do it together. If it's not realistic, then saying that, like, believing it's realistic will make it realistic. The secret. 
the secret. It's the secret. Um, we've also got a link to, like Craig mentioned in the ad break, our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash overdue pod. You can give us a little bit of money, support the work we're doing, and uh, pay our hosting costs and book buying costs and equipment costs and all the, the many, many, like the spiritual costs. <laughs> yeah. Support um, our future it, travel plans, things like yeah, that. that. Yeah, that go into making the show. Um, next week, I am going to be reading The Eye of the World, the first book in the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. I meant I said earlier that I had bought the second one. I want to I want to make it clear. I bought the ebook version of the second one. My okay. dog-eared paperback version of the second one is still disintegrating on my bookshelf where it belongs. <laughs> yeah, you don't touch it or it'll fall apart. Yeah. No, I almost I I tried to I want I almost bought new like nice hardcover versions of the first ones, but then they cost like $30 and I felt bad about writing that off as a business expense. Yeah, that's so. not good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a series I have a lot of thoughts about. So buckle up for that one. And then uh, later this month we will be releasing our episodes about stop Homer time. Uh, that's, we're going to cover the Odyssey books 12 to 15 uh, using Emily Wilson's translation. If you're not following along, you should be. We're having a lot of fun with those. Yeah, they're pretty good. Yeah. Anything else? No, that's it. I'm out of here. Bye. All right, everybody. Craig left. But just between you and me, everyone, you try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.